Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll learn about the world of polyamory and how difficult it can be to live in that world. You'll help a man on a motorcycle with a broken ankle back to safety, and you'll reevaluate your relationship with risk after a direct protest action goes terribly wrong. Finally, you'll learn how to become a horse farrier. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on June 13th, 2018 to a sold-out crowd at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Risk. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. First, I want to let you know that the next live Tell Us Something event is October 2nd in Missoula, Montana. The theme is It's Complicated. We are taking story pitches for that show right now. If you'd like to pitch your story, please call 406-203-4683 and pitch your It's Complicated story. All right, let's get to the stories. Our first story comes to us from Joe Nickel, who shares his discovery story about the world of polyamory in this coming-of-age tale. Joe calls his story Coming Out Poly. I was 25 years old when I first heard the word polyamory. I was hanging out with a friend from college and he was telling me about these people who believed in an approach to romantic love, deep committed romantic love, where you could share that with more than one partner, maybe even a whole network of people. And as he was telling me about this, I was like, that's my tribe, where are they? (laughs) Unfortunately, he had just read about it in USA Today. And I didn't know where to look. This was before the World Wide Web. It was before there was a Google. And so I just let it drop. 18 years later, I was on an online dating site when I stumbled across a question that changed my life. The question was, if a partner asked you to cut them during sex, would you? I was like completely horrified by this. But it did make me think, okay, so wait a second, that's a really vulnerable question that somebody posted on that site. And it made me ask myself, what is it that I have been afraid to ask for in my relationships? Well, the answer to that was very obvious, polyamory. I had been, uh, I had recently come out of the longest relationship of my life. It was 12 years long, 10 years married. And we had shared more deeply than I'd ever shared with anybody in my entire life. And yet, in all of that time, there was one word that had never parted my lips, polyamory. It wasn't that I was unaware of myself and and how I am. As, As a matter of fact, time and time again during my marriage, I would find myself falling head over heels infatuated with some friend or another, even as I was constantly head over heels in love with my wife. And I just didn't know what to do with that. Like none of the relationships around me had been modeled in this way. As a matter of fact, you know, I grew up in Kentucky, the son of some really lefty liberal do-gooder people who modeled a kind of relationship that was, you know, one man and one woman. They met in high school. They uh, graduated, they got married at the end of college. They had kids together, just like their parents and their parents before them, just like every movie and TV show that we, I ever saw. But you know, it was more than that. Because when I was in high school, my cousin Matt came out as gay. Well, this was a wrenching experience for our entire Kentucky family. His, particularly his parents, they were traditional Baptists who believed that this meant that Matt was going to hell to burn forever based on who and how he loved. And then, you know, 2003, the Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts, hallelujah, legalized gay marriage, right? And the pundits got on TV and they were like, you know what this means. The next thing that's gonna happen, people are gonna start marrying their pets and they're gonna start marrying their toasters and they might even start marrying multiple people. And you know, you realize at moments like that, that as far as our culture's concerned, I'm even more shunned than the gay people now because I'm as bad as the toaster marriers. So, you know, and even today, 
you know, all 50 states you can get, uh, gay marriage is legalized, and yet I can't even link my Facebook profile to two partners. So I kept my mouth shut. Because see, here's the risk, here's the thing. By coming out as who I truly am inside, I risked, ironically, being left alone. A born relator, forever single. That night when I was on the dating site and had this thought process that spun out, I made a decision and I went back and I changed, well, I didn't change all the answers, but I reviewed every question that I'd answered on that dating site and I changed them away from what I thought other people might accept and I changed them to who I am. And then I sat back and waited to see what would happen. The end of um, 2015, Christmas 2015, I was alone for the first time on the holiday. And I was starting to think that maybe this polyamorous dream of mine was just so much fantasy. And so I decided to get back on the dating site and start looking a little, looking a little further afield. And I came across a profile in Spokane, Washington. I saw this photo that took my breath away. And without looking at any of her other photos, without reading anything she said about herself, without even seeing how she answered all those questions, I sent her a message and I said, you win at online dating and I have to meet you. Because you know, as far as I'm concerned, anyone who shows themselves standing aboard a rusty commercial fishing vessel with stormy seas in the background, wearing a big red rain poncho and a giant rubber horse head and holding a really pissed off house cat, that's the woman for me. <laughs> and she messaged me back. And her name was Darla and she was a Buddhist and a vegan and she, we started texting and it was like constant, just ridiculous, childish, like always on my phone, hundreds of messages a day. She came to visit me a week later in Missoula here. And the first time we made love, she looked me in the eye and she said, I already know we fit. And I knew exactly what she meant because I knew it too. And a couple of weeks later, I was starting trying to get my, get my gumption up to, to talk about maybe this non-monogamy stuff when she said it first. She said, what do you think about polyamory? <laughs> and so we started reading books and talking constantly about this stuff, listening to podcasts, and we talked and we talked and talked, and we loved and we loved and loved. And today, I share, we share rings together that, to symbolize how far and how deep we've come. And I'm great friends with her other partner, Eric, who's a mechanic at SeaTac. They b first bonded over their shared love of diesel, diesel engines. <laughs> I know nothing about engines, so I'm really glad that Darla has an Eric in her life. You know, being Polly in Missoula, uh, it kind of sucks. <laughs> I've dated a succession of um, mostly monogamous people who think, well, maybe this poly thing, I could maybe give it a try until they fall in love and then it doesn't seem like their thing anymore. But, you know, then there's the case of Melissa. Melissa and I met a couple of years ago on a dating site, different dating site, and she messaged me back and I was like, I get to go on a date with her? And I mean, she was so beautiful and she seemed smart and then I met her and she just exuded this warmth and empathy that I just, I was like, I need more of that in my life. And so we dated for a while and then we kind of fell out of touch for a while. And then she came back to me because she wanted to talk about this polyamory, polyamory stuff more and understand more about it. And so we started talking more and we read the book together and, um, and we ended up starting a Facebook group for local poly people and lo and behold, there are some of us out there. Although it's a secret group, you can't find it because there are a lot of people who still are worried that they could lose a job, lose a family, lose custody because of who they are inside. And eventually, you know, this relationship has blossomed into the kind of relationship where you know, next week I am having a fairly significant medical procedure. And for most of you, you probably would ask your husband or your wife or your brother or your sister
to be there for you? Well, to me, the, the person to ask is really obvious in my life, and that's Melissa. And I'm sure that during the day, she'll be texting back and forth with Darla, my partner, my other partner, and um, you know, probably sending compromising photographs. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Darla will be happy that there's a Melissa in my life. Last night, I was talking to my therapist, and he's, he, uh, he's gay, he went through the whole uh, revolution of the last 30, 40 years, and he said to me, Joe, you're about to push back against one of the last great taboos in our culture. And I guess maybe that's true, but what I know is that as I have become more true to myself and more open with my friends and family and lovers about who I am, people, it has created what feels like a safe space around me for people to be more, um, more open and more vulnerable with me. And as a result, I feel more deeply connected and, and more widely connected with people than I ever had, have in my entire life. You know, I was 25 years old uh, when, oh, something beeped. I was 25 years old when I first heard this word, polyamory. I'm almost 50 now. And I can finally stand up here on the stage of the Wilma Theater and say, hi, I'm Joe, and I'm polyamorous. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Joe Nickel is a lefty writer and the creator and co-host of the first TV series ever broadcast on the internet. He plays percussion in the Missoula Symphony and drums in the band Motorhome, which once wrote a song inspired by a tell-us-something story. Joe's relationship status is complicated, which is how he likes it. Joe wanted me to let you know that anyone interested in connecting with the poly community in Montana can go to tellussomething.org for more details. Our next story comes to us from Jeff Sutton. On a motorcycle trip in Baja, Mexico, Jeff Sutton's companion breaks his ankle in deep sand 90 kilometers from town. Jeff shares the story of how they worked together to get Greg and both bikes home safely. Jeff calls his story Sandbag. Thanks. Hi, y'all. Want to welcome our guests from other places around the world. One of my favorite things to do is visit other places and learn about other cultures and other people. And one of the reasons why I like to go by motorcycle is because you're exposed to the elements, uh, hearing the sound of the call to prayers and Oman or something through the helmet. And you're just right there with everything. And, and I love learning about a lot of other cultures and people and how they live. So uh, this uh, last spring, my friend Gregory, who's here, invited me to go on a trip down to the Baja uh, by motorcycle. We both have big adventure bikes. I ride a 1190 KTM, which weighs dry about 500 pounds. And he drives uh, uh, BMW GS, which is about 585 pounds dry. That's without gas bags. Um, the winter before, he and I had gone to Vietnam, and uh, we rode Honda 250s, where you had about enough room for your rain gear, and if you wanted clean underwear, you just turned your inside out, and uh, and there you there we were. But this trip, we decided we'd do uh, some camping, so we had tents and sleeping bags, cooking gear. We were just going to sleep on the beaches, so the bigger bike really made sense. Plus, we were going to go much farther distances. So we left Missoula, got to the Mexican border, drove three days, camped on the beach a couple nights, got to uh, Bahia de Los Angeles on the Sea of Cortez rented a little palapa on the beach, and, and while we were sitting there, the guy says, hey, you guys ought to go to this little other place, San Francisco, San Quito, and it's a little bay often, but it's 130 kilometers on a gravel road. And he says, yeah, well, they did the Baja 1000 there a little while ago, but they just plowed it, and it's in pretty good shape. The Baja 1000 is a really rugged motorcycle race of a thousand kilometers through Mexico. So I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And uh, the next morning I wake up and beautiful sunset, but the night before I had sort of a bad feeling because I had been down here about 12 years before and uh, on a BMW 650, which is half the motorcycle size of what I'm riding, 
And uh, my friend Hank Harrington and I decided to ride part of this road. And after he fell for the fourth time, we decided, eh, that's enough. So I said to Gregory that morning, I said, you know, I'm a little nervous about this. Uh, you know, we got to be careful. And we, we decided that if it was too bad, we would just turn around and come back. So we take off uh, after breakfast, maybe about 9 o'clock in the morning. And we make it, oh, 30 kilometers, and we get off, and we're kind of congratulating each other. It's beautiful, the desert's beautiful, and flowers are blooming, cactus everywhere. And we're both in our 60s, I'm the young one, and, uh, and uh, we're thinking, yeah, we're really out here doing this, this is great. And we go on, and I had, the guy had told us there was a big hill, and uh, that was the worst part of the trip. We get up to the top of the hill, I immediately dropped my bike and uh, went, well, it's okay, we pick it back up. Greg says, I'm gonna lead now. So he takes off. The road's really kind of gnarly. It's sand, it's gravel, and these are big bikes. We probably got seven, 800 pounds under each one of us. So you're just going like this and gritting your teeth. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a challenging ride, but we were, we were managing it and uh, we made it, 100 kilometers, and I'm about 200 yards behind Gregory, and I come up over the hill, and I look down the road, and there's his bike on the road, and I don't see Gregory. So I go, oh shit, and I, I get all of a sudden hit about 12, 14 inches deep sand, and I'm just going like this, and I kind of ride my bike up to the edge and just drop it, run down there, and I see his helmet sticking out from underneath the bike. And I go, Gregory, are you okay? And I hear this, I broke my ankle. And I go, oh shit, we're in trouble now. So I run up there and I take his helmet off and he's got blood running down his face and uh, trying to assess the situation. So I drag him out from underneath the bike and we try to see if there are any bones sticking out of his leg, which there weren't, fortunately. And uh, trying to decide what are we gonna do? And he says, well, I got some pain pills in my bag air, but there weren't any pain pills. And I drag him up under the shade, and I kind of set up a tent and put some, uh, my fly up for more shade. When he crashed, it was 92 degrees. It was about noon. And uh, we're 100 kilometers from town, and we haven't seen anybody on the road all day. So we're kind of going, well... What do we do next? Well, I got a satellite phone. So I get the satellite phone out. He's trying to call, and I go down and check my bike and to get some things off of it, which is about 100 yards down, and I notice the gas is leaking out of it. So I'm trying to lift it up, and when I had rode up, I, was, I dropped it so it was downhill. Uh, I can't lift 600 pounds anymore. And, uh, <laughs> Used to be able to, but remember, I'm, I'm the young one. And uh, so I go back and I said, God, I can't get my bike up, but I had propped something underneath it so the gas quit leaking out. And Greg, uh, and I sit there and he says, I can't get anything on the satellite phone. And so he gives it to me and I start trying to dial it. He says, well, get out, under, out away from under the tree. And you know, in the daytime, you can't see the satellites going by. So I'm kind of going like this, and trying to find a signal. And I keep getting a message that says, this phone isn't set up for Mexico in Spanish. So no satellite phone. So we sit there for a couple hours. I have the tent set up. We have two gallons of water. And when I took Greg's helmet off, he was bleeding. And I said, uh, well, let me wash that blood off your face at least. And he says, uh-uh, we might need the water. And at that point, I kind of thought, oh, shit, you know. We could be in trouble. So after about two hours, Gregory says, you know, I think we got to get out of here. And... Uh, and because we just don't know if anybody's going to come by at all. So I said, well, what's the first thing we got to do? And he says, well, we got to get the bikes up. So I walk back to my bike and unload all the bags, and I carry an extra gas can, and I put everything on the side. And Gregory crawls on his two hands and one leg the 100 yards back to my bike. 
gets underneath it and the two of us, we get it up, but it's pointed the wrong way and the sand's about this deep and I'm trying to rock it back and forth. It won't go anywhere. So we kind of go, ah, well, we saw this episode of MacGyver once. (laughs) And if you put the kickstand down on a flat rock, you can lift the bike up on the kickstand and he laid on the ground and pushed it with his good leg. So we spun the bike around and I rode it out and, uh, and then I started loading my bags back up to the hard pack and Gregory's crawling the 100 yards back to his bike and we unload it and we do the same MacGyver trick, turn it around and uh, as I was walking down there, it looked like this great big slug with two hands because there was this thing. <laughs> well, if you know anything about dirt biking, you got to stand up and you got to put your weight on the pegs on the outside. That's how you kind of keep it in the gravel and everything. And I'm going, man, how's he going to do this? So uh, another MacGyver trick, we duct taped his ankle together over his boot and... Uh, put him in second gear and he got on the bike and I pushed him on one side while he rode out of the sand. So we get both of us on the hard pack. It's now about 4.30, it's probably 95, 98 degrees. I'm sweating like a pig. I've been packing all these bags up and down through the sand. So we say, let's go. So we take off and uh, we uh, get up to the top of the hill. We decide we're gonna camp out. We camp out alongside the road. And uh, the next morning, we get on the bikes. We ride all the way back into town. Uh, We get to a clinic. He can't, there's no x-ray, so he goes to another hospital three and a half hours away and uh, finds out that he needs surgery. And so five days later, he makes it to Missoula. And, uh, but I'm at this hotel this whole time, and uh, I was trying to take care of his bike, and they told me to put it up on the patio, so I took it up there, and I rode it up the ramp, and I drove it right through the hotel door. That cost me $300. (laughs) Um, But the thing was is that, you know, we went to the clinic, he went to the hospital, he had x-rays, everything, no cost. The guy let me stay in the hotel, no cost. The guy gave me money to get home on, he fed me for two days. And when Donald Trump says, you know, these people are bad, I say, you know, you ought to come down here and see these Mexicans, they're pretty nice people. I would actually tell them they're better than those backstabbing Canadians, thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Sutton is an avid traveler and his favorite way to see the world is on a motorcycle. He has ridden across China, the Altai Republic of Russia and Serbia, Oman to the North Cape of Norway, and the most southern point of Africa. He continues to ride and explore new places around the world. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as we can. Please rate and review us, and then recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to just one person who has never listened to it before. Thank you. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to just take a moment and thank our title sponsors. The Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community. MontanaBookstore.com CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience worldwide. With fast and easy ordering, free hinge matching service, and same-day shipping, CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. Gecko Designs. They build beautiful mobile-friendly websites for both large and small clients in Missoula and around the country. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. 
Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, and the Top Hat Lounge. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Visit them at logjampresents.com. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Brihanala Morgan is a political activist protesting at the Chinese consulate in San Francisco, and her friend almost dies falling from great heights. Brihanala calls her story Fear and Falling. A quick warning for some of our more sensitive listeners, Brihanala's story addresses a violent encounter with frank language. I'm standing on the top of Mount Jumbo, and I'm wondering whether I'm going to paraglide off. It's an 85-degree day, and I've just hiked up there with my 25-pound pack, and I really don't want to hike back down. But the weather is not perfect, especially for a fledgling paraglider like me. And as my friends start talking each other up and getting ready to fly, I'm feeling less and less like I really want to fly that day. And as they're laying out their wings, I'm putting my pack back on my back, and I'm starting that trek down the hill. And as I'm doing that, I'm feeling this mess of emotions. I'm feeling... Really, like, I've made the right choice for myself, but I'm also just feeling frustrated and feeling like I wimped out. And I'm also thinking about why I made that decision and if I would have made a different decision if it weren't for something that had happened to me 10 years earlier. So, in 2008, I was 26 years old, and I defined myself as a nonviolent direct action activist. And what that meant is that me and my community of folks would hang banners or do blockades and risk arrest to bring attention to issues that otherwise wouldn't get attention in the media or by decision makers. And these actions, although they seemed really risky to people on the outside, actually tended to follow a pretty similar pattern. You would do the action, you would get arrested, but then you'd generally get let out pretty quickly. And pretty much always the charges would be dropped. So even though it seemed like something that was really like a scary thing to do, you kind of had an idea of what you were getting yourself into when you did these actions. So in 2008, as you may remember, China was hosting the Olympics. And Students for Free Tibet were using this opportunity to bring attention to the struggle of the Tibetan people to um, to protect their land and to gain independence from their, for their country from the Chinese government. And I was asked to participate at an action at the Chinese consulate in San Francisco. So that's how I found myself at six in the morning, climbing four stories up the back of the Chinese consulate in San Francisco with this incredible Tibetan activist named Nyandak. We were going to the roof of that Chinese consulate to do what we call a hangman action. And what a hangman action is, is when one person, in this case it was Nyandak, would rappel over the side of a building and then hanging, in this case three stories above the ground, she would use a series of ropes and she'd use a cloak to make it look like she was being hung. She also had a sign on her that said, Tibetans are dying for freedom. In my role in all of this was to do the rigging and was to set up two strong redundant anchors for Nyandak to help her rappel over the side of the building and then once she was all set up to protect her ropes and to talk to anybody that came up and wanted to know what we were doing and generally to just keep her safe. So we got all set up, Nyandak was over the edge, she was all set up for the action. It was still really early in the morning. No one from the Chinese consulate had gotten to, the, gotten, to the, gotten to their office yet. So we were fine and it was quiet. Then at around 8 a.m., I see a door open to the, to the roof and I, I start to try to explain, you know, hi, I'm Bria, we're here for this action, but they slammed the door shut and for another 10 or 15 minutes, it's, it's all quiet on the roof. And then all of a sudden the door slams open and five people run out onto the roof. And I try to again explain using a calm tone of voice what we're doing there. 
but I don't know if they don't hear me or they don't speak English or they just don't want to talk to me, but I see that one man has a three-foot-long steel pipe and another woman has a knife. And as I'm trying to explain about what's going on, the man with the steel pipe runs up to me and starts hitting me over my head and over my neck and my back, shoving me away from Nyandak's ropes. And at this point, I'm screaming and I'm saying, there's a woman at the end of those ropes. We're here, we'll leave, just please, please just, just let us get out of here. And I see the woman take the knife and she starts cutting through that first set of anchors. And I am just screaming, and I see that first set of anchors go, and I see Nyandak's rope caught by that second redundant set of anchors, and at this point, I'm on the far other end of that roof, still being beaten, still being hit by this steel pipe, and I am screaming, if you cut her rope, she's gonna die, she's gonna fall three stories to the ground, to the concrete. And the woman with the knife just cuts through that second set of lines, and I see the lines sever, and I see Nyandek's rope go over the edge. And at that point, the men who'd been beating me with this steel pipe, they grab me by my shoulders, and they pull me into the consulate, which is still utterly quiet. No one's come to work yet, and I've never been so sure that I'm going to die in my life, because I've just seen what they've done to my friend. And... Thank goodness, they take me and they pull me through the consulate and they throw me out on the street to the police that are now down, down in the front, above, in front of the building. And I have done a lot of nonviolent direct actions before and I have never hugged my arresting officer before. But this time, I hugged my arresting officer because <laughs> I was so happy to be out of that consulate. And I look around and I try to see what happened to Nyandak and all I can see of her is her arm. She's fallen onto this concrete awning above the front door and she's not moving. And the people in the Chinese consulate won't let anyone go inside to give her any medical help. So no one knows what's happening. And that's all I see of her until, because I'm taken away by the police officers to a maximum security prison an hour away and I'm put in solitary confinement. And once I'm in solitary confinement, I'm able to at least finally take a breath and I feel myself and I see that although I'm certainly bruised from that pipe, I'm, I'm fine, I'm gonna be fine. And four or five hours later, I get my phone call and I learn that miraculously, Nyandak's arm was broken, but that's it. That's all that's happened to her. And she was taken to the hospital for medical help, and then she was taken to the same prison that I was in, and she was probably in solitary confinement just in a cell next to me. And the next, we spent the night in jail, and then the next morning, we find out that we are not, in fact, going to be deported to China to face trial, which is what we had been told might happen. But in fact, we are gonna be released and we're gonna face probation, but that's gonna be it. And so I'm physically okay, and Yandak is going to be okay, and we're free, but emotionally, I'm a wreck. I had taken part in this action and I had felt like I had some sort of idea about what I could expect. I felt like, although I knew there was a risk, I had no idea that I would see my friend, for all I knew, killed and would feel like I myself might have been killed. And that lack of certainty just felt like it pulled a rug out from underneath me in terms of just my confidence in understanding what this world could give me. And I didn't want to take any risks. I stayed at home for weeks. But then very slowly over the next days and the next weeks and months and years, I slowly started to be able to start to do those things that I love again. I started doing actions again, not quite as extreme as this particular action, but I also started, you know, rock climbing again and solo backpacking again and of course paragliding, learning to paraglide. And 
As I was walking down Mount Jumbo that day, leaving my friends up top to launch, I reached my car and I I felt at peace because I knew that I could feel the scars of what had happened to me that day and I could still feel them hurt. But I also knew that maybe the next day, maybe the day after that, I knew that I was going to be able to hike back up those hills and I knew I was going to be able to fly off. Thank you. Thanks, Brihanala. Brihanala Morgan has been working to protect Indonesia's tropical forests and the people who depend on them for over 15 years. When she's not causing trouble in the name of environment and social justice, she's working in the garden or wildcrafting and making wine, jam, and other products to preserve the bounty for family and friends. Originally from Madison, Wisconsin, Brihanala lives in Missoula with her partner Jonathan and their amazing Whippet cattle dog mix, Tufa. Our final story is from Mike Robinson, who quit his steady job to be a horse farrier. He calls his story, Farrier on a Bike. Here we go. I was 30 years old and I felt like I was a character in the movie Office Space. Anybody seen the movie Office Space? And so I quit my job and I was, felt pretty brave in doing that and I was excited. For a couple weeks, I, I had no idea what I was going to do, no plan. The weeks went on, I was probably about a month into it, and I was just a wreck. And I was thinking about crawling back to my boss and asking for my old job back, and I was talking to my sister, and she said, you know what you should do? You would be really good at this. You should be a farrier. And I said, oh, what? what? And she goes, well, you, well, you take care of horses' feet, you travel around, you work for yourself, uh, there's horses everywhere, you can live where you want, and it pays pretty good. And I thought, ah, that sounds great. So within a week, I was signed up for farrier school. If I had any misgivings about being a farrier, they were, they were just amplified when I actually showed up to school. For, for one thing, I was about 10 years older than everybody there. A large number of them didn't get out of high school. I had a master's degree. They had the cowboy hat and the buckle and the boots, and they talked about their horses, the horses they had, the horses they wanted to get. They talked about all the stuff they did in the rodeo. And it's just a different world. I didn't fit in. I was talking with this one kid one day and he was looking at me and he said, I need to ask you about your shirt. And I said, yeah, he said, it says Trek. He says, what? I don't never heard of Trek, what's Trek? And I said, oh, my wife and I, we bought these uh, Trek road bikes and they gave us a shirt with a bike. He said, uh, you wanna be a farrier and you ride a bicycle? <laughs> Which was funny, but it was also true. Um, but I really enjoyed farrier school. Uh, we, we spent about two hours a day in the classroom, and I enjoyed that. I was probably the only guy there who enjoyed that. But we worked in the forge and the anvil and working with your hands and learning how to shoe a horse. It was, it was great. Uh, it was the antidote. I'd spent the last couple years in an office so on a computer, and this was, this was great. The hard part for me was the horse part. I could deal with the foot, but uh, being on a horse, these are scary animals. They're big. They're powerful. Uh, school got some rough horses, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, you would tell the rough horses in the morning the, the, the trailers would pull up and everybody would gather around and do these horses, they wouldn't load them and, and you knew the rough ones right away. They'd just be bucking and all this stuff. But the kids, the young kids there, they loved it because a lot of them were in the rodeo and the whole thing with the rodeo, it's like you, it's a sport, it's you against the animal and the, the rougher the animal is then that gives you the bigger chance to prove yourself against it. So they would all be fighting over the, the, the rough horses and I'd just stand back in the crowd and try not to notice anything until all the rough horses were gone and then there's this 25-year-old mare that's just standing there asleep and I'd volunteer for that one. And, and that worked pretty good for about six weeks. And I was standing in the back doing my thing. I think I was pretending to pull a splinter out of my finger. And Curtis, the head instructor, he says, uh, he says, hey you, you haven't done one of these yet. And I knew my number was up. This is, this is gonna do it. Uh, I kinda went and got my stuff and I get out there and the, when you got one of these horses, you do them outside and they have a little round pin. And it's a big show, everybody shows up. This is gonna be the most exciting thing that happens there that day. <laughs> and I'm walking out there and I just think I'm gonna demonstrate to everybody here, including myself, I just, you know, this is not me. When guys went out to the pen with these, these horses, they had, they had a strategy. Everybody had a different strategy. They shared strategies. Some of the really big guys or the dumb ones, they just grab hold and hold on. 
And the horse would tire out eventually or send somebody to the emergency room, and that happened more than once. The second thing they would do is, is uh, they use a twitch, which is a, a loop of chain on a stick. And this is kind of ugly, but you, you grab the horse's nose and you put that chain on there and you twist. And you could twist a little bit, but they would just keep twisting until that nose kind of turned upside down. And the horse would just buckle under the pain. And then you could go around and work on the feet and he couldn't object. And I wasn't going to do that either. The third thing you could do is they would rope the horse. They'd rope it, and then in a way they would throw the horse down on the ground, and the horse would be thrashing around. And if you watch a horse when he's on the ground, when he stands up, he, he throws his head and his neck, and that uses that momentum to get to his stomach, and then he could stand up. But if he's thrashing and you could hold the head down, then uh, the horse is going to be a lot calmer quite a bit calmer at least. And so you would ask for help. You'd call out to the crowd and there was this big guy, his nickname was Haas, everybody had a nickname. Haas is a big guy, he'd come out, he'd sit on the head and the horse would calm down and you'd do that. <laughs> and I thought that looked great. My problem was that I didn't know how to rope. <laughs> Not even close. So this is, this is a horseshoeing school and you could ask any questions about horseshoeing but roping was, uh, I guess, a prerequisite to the school. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that wasn't, object that wasn't for me either. So I walk out there and I, I had nothing. The only thing I had going on was um, I'd been around a couple mean dogs. I, I should call them scared dogs, not mean. You know, they're sparing their teeth and that's exactly how this horse looked. It's with the ears way back. And I was walking up to him and I knew with a dog, you'd kind of let him sniff you. So I kind of look out, you don't look him in the eyes and I walk up to him and it worked. The <laughs> horse comes up and he sniffs me and I'm standing there and I kind of start to pet him and he shies away and I keep doing that. And after about five minutes, everybody's gathered around and they had quite seen something like this. And so the heckles start coming in and they say, hey, Trek, that was my nickname. I said, hey, Trek, you're supposed to be working on her feet, not taking her on a date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, these guys were just hilarious. Um, but, it, but I didn't mind because as far as I was concerned, this was going pretty well. Like, you know, no one was hurt. I was just standing there petting the horse and, and quite a while I get back to the foot and I finally got a foot up and then another foot and it was probably two hours and everybody had long cleared out as soon as they saw that there, there wasn't gonna be a show here, but I got it done and I was thinking, man, you know, maybe there is something to this. Like maybe I shouldn't be so intimidated by the horse. Like maybe there's something that, that uh, I thought you had to be born to it. I thought you had to be raised in it, but you know, maybe it's something that I could apply myself and work on. So the horse part got better. School ended, you in school, you have a, a final exam, a written exam, and I aced the written exam. And then you have this uh, practical test. You gotta make the shoes and fit them on the horse and trim and you're graded and all these things. And Curtis came to me afterwards. He said that I got the highest score that he's ever get out as, as head instructor there. So I was proud of that. Thank you. He had only been there a couple years. <laughs> Uh, in fact, the owner of the school, he, he came and he grabbed my elbow after this and he asked if I'd want to stay around for uh, a year or so as an assistant instructor. And I said, wow, that, that sounds pretty good. How much does it pay? And he said, well, it's more an honorary thing. You know, you get some more experience. <laughs> so I, I said, thank you. And I'm going to go, go get to work. We were moving to Minnesota after this, which is another story. And my wife, she left about a week early. Uh, she found us a house to live in and she found herself a job. And I spent the last week of school getting my truck all outfitted. I had all the shoes and the racks and the, and the forge and everything in back. And I was so proud I had these business cards printed up. It said Mike Robinson Farrier on it. So I drive up to Minnesota, I get there at night and the next morning I head out. I wake up early and I'm just so excited. It's gonna be my first day working as a farrier. I head out and I have to say, most of the kids at the school, when they went home, you know, they had their horses and their family had horses and their friends and neighbors had horses and they had a place to start a business and I didn't know a single person with a horse. So my plan, I was just gonna drive around, I was gonna look in the fields for a horse. <laughs> and then I'd pull in the driveway and introduce myself. And, and uh, so that's, that's what I did. <laughs> Didn't go very well. Um, it was a weekday and I knew it was a weekday and most people weren't around and I would write a little note on the back and say I'm new to the area and, and I'd leave the note on the door. Uh, so the people that were home, it was, didn't go very well. Uh, most of them liked the ferry they had, thank you very much for stopping by, or, or the ones that actually talked to me, that, that didn't go well. They said, well, you know, how long have you been a farrier? You know, a couple hours, I guess. Uh, or, you know, tell me about your experience and horses in general, and, and that didn't go very well. 
And by mid-afternoon, I <laughs> laugh about it now, but uh, I was not doing well. Um, I was probably <laughs> as depressed as I ever been. Um, and I got thinking, how did I get here? I took this, I had this nice stable job. I had six years of higher education invested in this. And why did I quit? Like, what was in that job that, that, that wasn't working for me? You know, it wasn't my, wasn't my boss. I got my, sorry. It wasn't my boss. My boss was great. The company was great. We actually did interesting work. Just, you know, what did it say about for me that I couldn't do that? And then what am I doing driving around rural Minnesota, you know, pretending to be a farrier? I'm not a farrier. I'm just a fraud out here. And my heart was just at this pit of growing in here. Like, what am I doing here? I don't know. So I said, you know, in Minnesota, they say you just got to have the strength to do what, you know, get up and do what needs to be done. And so that's what I was doing. I was going to work till five and it was almost five and I was working my way home and there was a single horse out in the field. I thought this is probably my last stop for the day. So I pull into the driveway and knock on the door. I start going through the speech and uh, she stops me right away and she says, uh, that's not, that's not our horse. So that's our field, but we lease it out to this woman uh, who has the horse and her nephew comes out and trims it. So she doesn't need anything. And I said, okay, thank you. And I turned to go and she says, but she says, uh, we do have a goat. <laughs> she said, you work on goats, don't you? And, and I said, yeah, absolutely. I work on goats. So I got my stuff and I get out there and I walk around the house and there's the goat in this little pen and and I don't know, I guess there's different breeds of goats, I don't know, but this is a really big goat. And I walk in the pen and he is not a happy goat. He's looking at me and he kind of backs into a corner. He's got these antlers and he kind of gets down to me and I start walking to him, you know, hand out, don't look at him, you know, he's gonna sniff me. And I get just right up next to him and he just rams me, he hits me right here, almost knocks me over and then he hits me again and the third time, it's just my instincts kick in and I just tackle the thing. And I'm not talking like there's like a rodeo way to like bulldog. It's not that. I like high school football. I just tackle the thing. <laughs> and it had been raining and now we're, it's muddy and, there's, and it's a small pen. So it's just piled high and goat crap. And we're rolling around and this goat is strong and he's screaming and I'm rolling around with him. And I, I'm now into my high school wrestling and I got the thing like a half Nelson. <laughs> I got a leg hook going. And it was chaos, but I, I knew, <laughs> I had been to school and I was professional and I knew what to do. And I look at this woman and I said, you need to come here and sit on his head. And, <laughs> and, and, she, <laughs> and she does. And it worked, the goat settled right down. I mean, it, it probably wouldn't work. She only weighed about hundred pounds, but she was about eight months pregnant. And I think that extra 20, and so I get to the feet and I'm really hoping it looks something like a horse foot and it, it, it doesn't. And I, uh, kind of like a deer foot, I'd seen a deer foot. So I, uh, I start working a little bit and I get in and then all of a sudden, I think I'm doing pretty good, but I hit the quick and now some blood starts coming out. So I move to the second foot and I know where to stop now. And the third and fourth foot, it looks pretty good. And the goat stands up and she goes, that looks really good. And I say, thank you. And then she caught me off guard. She says, well, what do I owe you? And I said, I, I'd done some research. I know that the going rate was $25 to trim a horse's foot. I got to think quick, you know, like a goat. And I, I said, well, a goat's about the third the size of a horse. So I, I tell her, I say, I, I charge $10 for goats. And, and she pays me and, and uh, I'm on my way. And now I'm headed home in a very different frame of mind than I had been <laughs> half an hour earlier. And... Uh, and I get home and I walk in the door and, and uh, my wife, she's excited. She runs to the door and see me. She says, how did it go? And I'm just standing there just mud and goat crap. And, and I reach in my pocket and I pull out this $10 bill. <laughs> and, and, and she and I both knew that I'd spent a lot more that day just in driving around, just in gas. And, uh, and this, is, this is why I love my wife. She looks at that $10 bill she just runs to me and she throws her arms around me and gives me a big kiss and she says, I knew you could do it. <laughs> she said, I'm just so proud of you. And, uh, and that's how I became a farrier. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Mike Robinson has been a certified journeyman farrier for the past 15 years, working on about 2,500 horses per year. He has worked on just about every type of horse breed and discipline there is, 
from racehorses to trail horses, ranch horses to show horses, drafts to minis, backyard pets to police horses. In addition to horses, he regularly works on mules, donkeys, and burros, and the occasional llama, sheep, goat, pig, and cow. He has tended to the foot care of specialties of ungulates he can't even name at the La Crosse Municipal Zoo. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org. Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. FactandFictionBooks.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, including The Trail 103.3, Jack FM 105.9, U104.5 FM, and ESPN 102.9. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Enlighten Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks. Or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Missoula Federal Credit Union. Find them at MissoulaFCU.org. Thanks to Cash for Junkers, who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at CashForJunkersMusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Joe Nickel, Jeff Sutton, Rihanna La Morgan, and Mike Robinson. The next live Tell Us Something event is October 2nd at the Wilma. The theme is It's Complicated, and we're taking story pitches for that show right now. Call 406-203-4683 to pitch your It's Complicated story. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org. Thanks for listening.